All of us have regrets. A business that fails, a degree we never finished, or a friendship we let fade away. Sometimes we make choices we regret, while other times we regret the choices we didn't make or the paths we didn't pursue. Regret can be painful. Who doesn't know the sinking feeling that comes with saying, if only I hadn't done that? But some psychologists believe that regret can also be productive. By learning from our regrets rather than dwelling on them, we can make needed changes in our lives and set ourselves up to make better decisions in the future. So what's the difference between productive and unproductive regret? Why do some people seem to ruminate on their regrets more than others? If regret is consuming your thoughts, what can you do about it? And in this age of social media and fear of missing out, do people have more regrets than they used to? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. My guest today is Dr. Robert Leahy, founder and director of the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy in New York City and a clinical professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. He is the past president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, the International Association of Cognitive Psychotherapy, and the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. Dr. Leahy is the author or editor of 29 books for clinicians and the general public. His latest book is called, If Only, Finding Freedom from Regret. And it is all about learning to understand regret and make it a tool for self-knowledge and change. Dr. Leahy, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Kim, for having me, and I hope um, you don't regret having me on the show. <laughs> I don't think I will. Let's talk about what we mean by regret. Is regret an emotion, a way of thinking, or a little of both? Well, it's a, li it's a little of both. Uh, both. Uh, you know, regret is certainly a way of thinking. It's a, uh, uh, it's a sense of uh, emotion, of disappointment. Uh, or remorse or sadness about an action taken or not taken, uh, or what we might anticipate uh, we might feel if we take an action or do not take an action. So it's, it's both cognitive and emotional. Um, and the thing that's interesting about regret, Kim, is that um, in, in, the, in, the, you know, in the clinical literature, uh, there really is very little on regret that I came across in my reading. I mean, there's a lot on regret in behavioral economics, decision-making, decision, -making, decision uh, processes, uh, but it's the second most commonly mentioned emotion uh, in conversations that college students have, love being the first. So, um, so it's a pervasive emotion. It's often an emotion that people ruminate about, uh, an emotion that can linger on uh, sometimes for decades. I mean, I've talked to people in their 90s who regret decisions they made when they were in their 20s. So it's, um, it's a fascinating emotion and looking forward to talking about it today. Well, what's the difference between productive and unproductive regret? Right. A lot of people, especially on social media, where it's always the positive, the power of positive thinking and all, regret is... Um, is it's an emotion like all emotions evolved 
because they were adaptive. So how can regret be adaptive? It certainly can be maladaptive. It can lead to rumination, depression, self-criticism, resentment. Um, but it can be adaptive if you use it in the right way. So, for example, productive regret would be uh, an ability to learn from my mistakes or to anticipate learning from my mistakes. So, for, for example, um, if you uh, ask young people to think about what they're going to live on when they're in their 60s toward the end of their working career, how much money they're going to have, uh, that increases planned savings. Um, you know, half the people, for example, who are prescribed medication for hypertension a year later don't take the medication. But if you ask them to think about what their life would be like if they have a stroke and they're paralyzed or unable to speak, whatever, that significantly increases uh, the compliance with medication. So, so regret can be used productively if you look back and you think, gee, you know, what did I do that in the future I might do differently? Uh, that's like a self-correction type thing. Uh, unproductive regret or maladaptive regret uh, is characterized not by self-correction, but by self-criticism. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, self-loathing, self-hatred. Um, it's unproductive regrets characterized by dwelling on it over and over and over and not viewing it as an opportunity to learn from experience. I mean, if you think about, about regret as... Um, now, you carried out an experiment. You you did something or you chose not to do something, and you're not satisfied with the consequences. Well, we as psychologists are always carrying out experiments, but we in our ordinary lives carry out experiments. You know, you carry out the experiment of bringing up uh, the most uh, provocative political statement on Thanksgiving uh, dinner with your family, and you find out that that experiment didn't work very well. <laughs> what did you learn from that experiment? You know, what's interesting to me is there's some people who don't seem to learn from their mistakes, and uh, or or don't don't anticipate their mistakes. So, for example, people who abuse drugs, who overeat, who don't take their medication, who engage in unsafe sex who say inappropriate things, they don't seem to anticipate the regret. They're not using what I would call prospective regret or anticipatory regret in a useful way. Um, people who are manic, who think they can do anything, that they have all the powers in the world and they're too sexy for their own clothes. And, you know, they're just, they don't anticipate regret. Uh, they, they're a little bit too uh, over the top with their confidence. Um, so it's, it's an important thing to use regret productively. And I think the most economical way, Kim, to use regret is to use the regrets of other people. I know when I was in my early 20s, a lot of my age peers were misusing drugs or misusing alcohol. And um, I thought, you know, gee, the only thing I really have of any value, because I had no money, I was on a fellowship, the only thing I have any value is my brain. Uh, I'm not going to endanger my brain uh, or my health 
like some of these people have. So it's using the regrets of other people in a uh, productive way uh, by learning from their mistakes. So there is a kind of inoculation then for certain people, if you're capable of visualizing what your future might be like if you did something or didn't do something. Exactly. I like the word inoculation, Cam. That's great. You know, it's kind of like, like, you know, there's a lot of talk about living in the present moment, you know, which sounds so uh, comfortable. Uh, but the only creature that lives entirely in the present moment is a mosquito. So um, I like to think about living in all the moments of my life, um, you know, living, thinking about what I did when I was younger, the mistakes I made, the things I did right, uh, but also thinking about my future self. So, for example, one of the techniques that we use in cognitive behavior therapy is to ask yourself, what would your future self say? I've often do role plays with uh, patients, you know, so what would your future self say about over drinking or, you know, or, uh, uh, trying to uh, malign your boss uh, or, you know, spending all this money or whatever it is, what would your future self say? Not your immediate self, your future self, because your future self may be the wise self. Uh, and that's something that I think um, uh, that that's something that people often don't recognize that consequences will follow from actions that you take or do not take. Is there a difference in the degree of regret between something that you've done and regretting something that you didn't do? You know, the road not taken. Sure. Is one type of regret more difficult to learn from than the other? Well, it's interesting because in the short term, we tend to have more um, hot regret or emotional intensity of regret for actions taken. Um, so we 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 may be correct that if we take this action, we may immediately after have some regrets. For example, buyer's remorse. You buy a, a car or you buy an apartment or a house. A very common thing is right after you think, "What was I thinking?" You know, I'm putting all this money down, whatever. So this is called the action effect. You know, we have more regrets for action taken in the short term. But in the long term, as people look back on their lives, uh, they tend to regret what they did not do. So, um, and this is true cross-culturally in other uh, cultures that have been studied. Um, we tend to regret things we did not do. We did not pursue that uh, course of action or uh, that education or that relationship or that investment. Um, so that tends to be less of an intense, passionate regret. It tends to be more of a kind of uh, lingering, unpleasant feeling. But people can ruminate about that for months, years, decades. Well, let's talk about ruminating for a minute, because some people seem to get really stuck dwelling on their regrets and living and reliving what they did or didn't do. Are there some personality characteristics that lead some people to experience more regret or more painful regret? Sure. Yeah. So we know that rumination is a fundamental part of depression. Uh, and in fact, the research by uh, the late Nolan Aksima at Yale 
shows that people who ruminate are more likely to get depressed and stay depressed. Um, having said that, uh, in terms of tying in regret with rumination, there are certain ways of looking at the world that lead to more rumination. Um, one is to have inflexible expectations that um, this is what I expected. It wasn't what uh, what turned out. And so I'm going to just dwell on it. Um, the other is the tendency to not accept trade-offs. Uh, so in my view, like I live in New York City, and I know, Kim, that you lived in New York City at one time. So when you live in New York City, you've got to accept trade-offs. You know, <laughs> I mean, even standing for an elevator is a major trade-off uh, sure. negotiation. <laughs> you know, uh, so <laughs> where's um, my closet? Where's my backyard? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. When people when people get married, uh, they end up getting divorced over closet space, not over <laughs> arguments. But you know, it's um, uh, it, some some people have a hard time accepting trade offs. Trade offs. They think it's it's kind of like like there 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 are two ways of thinking that I think contribute to r rumination uh, and, and regret. One is what I call pure mind that my mind should be pure. So, for example, I should never be ambivalent. For example, I was talking with a, uh, a young man who had been uh, dating and actually living with this woman for several years. And he said, I don't know, how can I get married if I have mixed feelings? You know, so he equated ambivalence with it's not a good decision. And I said, well, first of all, the word decision in Latin means to cut away from. Uh, and it means that you have mixed feelings. That's what a decision is, right? <laughs> Second, one reason you have mixed feelings is that you know each other, right? I mean, Romeo and Juliet is a wonderful fantasy story, but it would not be a great way of basing your future uh, commitment to your life partner. You know, within five days, there are several people dead, including <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, based on a glance at a party uh, without any uh, conversation at the time. So um, ambivalence may be uh, a sign of reality testing rather than the idea that my mind should be absolutely pure. My emotion should always be positive. We have to recognize that life is filled with complexity and nuance and that ambivalence is simply a recognition, an honest recognition of that. Uh, it's like uh, Salieri, a famous composer around the time of Mozart, said too many notes. Um, but, you know, uh, Mozart had just the right of notes, the right number of notes, whatever. Um, we so, know that now. <laughs> yeah, he does, yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty good, that, that Mozart guy. Uh, yeah. Maybe not as great as Taylor Swift, but, you know, well, you can't have everything in life. But so ambivalence, the intolerance of ambivalence uh, contributes to regret and and um, and, and uh, rumination. Um, in any any decision, you know, people think about what is the risk of, of staying? What is the risk of changing? Um, all decisions are risk versus risk. So some people look at life is i'm going to try to find something where there's no risk you know um every every option has a risk so for example if you put 
if you put your money into a savings account and get close to 0% uh, interest, you the risk you take is you lose against inflation and you lose against the opportunity to make money if you invest it or put it in bonds, uh, invested in uh, equities. Um, if you put it in equities, you run the risk that the stock market could crash. So there's risk versus risk. If you get married, there's a risk it won't work out. If you don't get married, there's a risk you'll be lonely or whatever. It's comparing the risk. It's not looking for a risk-free alternative. Um, the, the other part of what leads people, I think, to have difficulty making decisions um, is the degree to which we, you know, this is especially true with people who are depressed, the degree to which we tend to have a bias to predict negatives. So I was talking with somebody who, very, very smart and very successful, in fact, very wealthy, who um, keeps almost all his money in, uh, you know, CDs and, and money markets uh, rather than investing in the stock market. Now, uh, that might be good on occasion, but in the long term, that is probably not a good strategy. But like other things in this person's life, he was risk averse. Mm -hmm. You know, do should I leave my partner? Should I, you know, make this decision? Whatever it is. So accepting accepting reasonable risk is part of making decisions, and it's also part of living with the consequences. So if the consequences one of the things that makes it hard for people and leads them to regret and to having uh, more regret and rumination is the tendency they have to idealize the alternative and to discount what they have. So, for example, people who regret might also, oh, if I had married this other person or pursued this other career, um, you know, I would be so much happier. I, you know, I remember a few years ago thinking, you know, I know when I was in high school, everybody thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I decided to be um, a psychologist, and I'm pretty happy with that. But I thought, you know, maybe I should have been a lawyer, you know, and all that. And then I began thinking, gee, I know a lot of lawyers, and they have one of the highest rates of depression. <laughs> you know, and it's such an adversarial. I'm not maligning lawyers, but I, I think for me, uh, being a uh, a psychologist has been a, a good choice, but we tend to idealize the alternatives. Um, and people who regret often, you know, idealize the alternatives. Mm -hmm. They have the fear of missing out. Um, somebody recently published an article on the joy of missing out. So it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it's another, like, it's another way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank God I'm not at that. I'm not uh, on 42nd street at 12 midnight, uh, new year's Eve. <laughs> Thank God I missed out on that. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so there's this sort of tendency to idealize the alternatives and then to discount what you have. And one, one way of, countering the idea of there's several ways of countering the idea of living with what you have uh, is to imagine if you had nothing. Um, so, um, and this is, I think something that in a affluent and very ambitious society, we often don't uh, spend enough time with gratitude. Um, so for example, I walk to my office, uh, 
I live on the Upper East Side. My office is on 58th Street. Um, and even if I walk down Third Avenue, I'll see people who are homeless. I saw an elderly woman who was homeless pushing a cart and stuff. And two emotions that can counter regret um, are one is compassion for somebody who has so little. And the other is gratitude for the fact that I'm actually able to walk down Third Avenue and go to a nice uh, office and talk to you today. So it's it's kind of like um, like we don't really uh, we don't really have the kind of culture of gratitude. And um, one one thing that's interesting, Kim, is that. Uh, there's a search tool called Google Ngram uh, that you can look, you can, you know, type in uh, Google Ngram and you'll come up with a search engine. And on the search engine, you can type in a word and see uh, how often that word is used in the printed language uh, over the last 150 years. So if we look at regret, regret had an incredible increase and the frequency in the English language uh, printed uh, books and documents between 1980 and 2019. And what happened during that time was a dramatic increase in economic inequality, a dramatic increase in perfectionism in surveys that were taken from like 1989 to 2016. You know, like, and, 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 a dramatic increase, I think, in the idea that I should be able to do everything. Um, so regret is the opportunity emotion. And we often think that opportunity is always a wonderful thing. But opportunity is also leads you to think, well, this person is so successful. Why, why am I not successful? Why am I not extremely wealthy or famous or whatever. So we have this, I mean, it's a dramatic increase in 1980 on. You find the same thing, by the way, in uh, Spanish literature and in Russia. So you have this dramatic increase in economic inequality, globalization, uh, alienation, perfectionism, uh, social media kicking in 20 years ago, where it gives you the social comparison. How many people are comparing themselves to the homeless elderly woman on Third Avenue, uh, they're comparing themselves to uh, Elon Musk, uh, who, by the way, doesn't seem to be a very happy person with his $240 <laughs> billion. <Right. laughs> but I mean, they're even comparing themselves to to their peers, but because yes. people use yeah. social media in such a way as to right. always right. present something yep. beautiful. This is yep. the lovely dinner I had last night. This is the vacation right. I took, whereas right. their life might be miserable, but you Absolutely. don't know that. Right, exactly. Yeah, like the, the humble brag. I'm so humbled. I'm so outstanding and having a wonderful time. You know, <laughs> no, you're not humble. <laughs> but but let me let me actually bring up humility. One of the concepts I, I describe in my uh, uh, book, If Only Finding Freedom from Regret, is um, what I call, uh, you know, adaptive humility. And this is a concept in the literature on humility that 
I find very appealing. Adaptive humility is not, I'm a doormat and I deserve nothing. And, you know, the whole, that's not what adaptive humility is. Adaptive humility is, I'm just another human being. Uh, I'm not special. I don't deserve any special treatment. I can make mistakes. Uh, I can be wrong. I can apologize. And what we know is that from the research on humility, um, uh, that people who are viewed as having humility, uh, people who are viewed as sincerely apologizing, are trusted more, have better relationships, have better friendships, uh, and people want to work with them. And I'm sure many people listening to this can say, think of people they know who never apologize. Mm-hmm. You know, adaptive humility is, you know, I'm, I made a mistake. I said something that wasn't fair. Um, I really felt bad about that. I want to apologize. I hope you accept my apology. Um, but in a sense, really, you, you can't say you owe me an apology. You know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, simply asking for an apology is not uh, the currency to buy an apology. Um, but adaptive humility allows you to live with mistakes, allows you to anticipate mistakes, uh, allows you to uh, use regret productively, uh, allows you to uh, have gratitude for what you have. Uh, I mean, I grew up very poor in a housing project. I mean, it was, you know, it was a tough neighborhood, but um, I'm not glamorizing poverty, but I think it led me to one, to have compassion for people who have less, uh, not to be an elitist uh, with people who um, don't have like, you know, high status positions to treat everybody as an equal um, uh, to, you know, to be able to live as a human being, not as some, uh, character above the uh, the crowd. In your work, you talk about the sunk cost effect when yeah. it comes to regret. What do you mean by that, and how can we overcome that cost to make better choices so that we might have fewer regrets in the future? Yeah, so the sunk cost effect. I think we all can identify with this. Um, and the sun, like you buy something, you spend a lot of money, you buy a dress or a jacket or whatever. And you wear it once, you put it in your closet, and it's there for five or ten years. And you or your partner say, you know, why don't you throw that out? You know, you haven't worn that jacket, Bob, in ten years. You know, oh, I paid good money for it, right? <laughs> so it's a sunk. It's what's called a sunk cost. In other words, I've already put the cost in. I've already paid the good money, but now it's not useful to me because I'm not using it. Uh, and I'm only kidding myself. And plus, it's taking up room in the closet. Plus, I could give it away to somebody else who could use it. And um, But we have – humans are the only living creature that gets trapped by some costs. I mean, cats and dogs and insects and birds, monkeys, uh, they're not trying to justify their past decisions. You know, They're not saying, well, I'm going to hold on to that banana for the next five – months <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I worked hard to get that banana. Uh, 
When it's no longer useful, they move on to something else. But humans are self-reflective. We want to make sense of our decisions. We think that, oh, if I throw that piece of clothing out, uh, I'm going to regret it. I'll miss it. Um, I'll be wasting, you know. I mean, one, one exercise I, I use when I give workshops is, let's imagine I hold up a $100 bill. And I said, you know, I'm not going to spend this on myself. I'm not going to give this to anybody. But what I'd like to do is burn it in front of people. All right. Most people watching me burn it would be really angry with me <laughs> because they don't want to see me wasting a hundred dollar bill. And we don't, you know, it's like when your mother says to you when you're 10 years old, eat everything on your plate. You know, there are people somewhere else in the world starving. Um, you know, it's this human thing about wasting and regret. Um, so what can you do with a sunk cost? Like, for example, you can have sunk costs about a relationship or a career. Uh, you know, some people start out a career and they hate it after a few years and they say, oh, I can't give it up because I put several years of training. I can't walk away from all that. That's a sunk cost. The question yeah. is, is the future going to be useful and is it going to be pleasurable and meaningful? Um, when I when I left academics because I wanted to pursue a clinical career, uh, the husband of one of my colleagues said, "Bob is leaving academics and research. What a waste of a good mind!" <laughs> <laughs> and I I think maybe he had a point. I should have listened to him. But you know, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like the idea that we have to justify our past investment. You know, for example, mm -hmm. people will hold on to a stock and say, well, I paid $100 for the stock. Uh, it went down to 60. It'll come back. Uh, no, your your money died and went to heaven. You know, it's not coming back. Right. It's not going to be resurrected. <laughs> they go to the cemetery, rest in peace. There's your investment. So, uh, but it's it's something that humans do. So, what we should think about, one, is what is the future utility of this? You know, what is the cost of my keeping it? What is the benefit? Second, like with a relationship, if I stay in this bad relationship for another year, what opportunities will I miss? Um, mm. If I stay in a bad marriage or whatever, um, I'll miss the opportunity of finding a new relationship or the opportunity of being happy on my own. Uh, I'll miss the opportunity of not having arguments with my partner. So, we think about opportunity costs. We think about the error of trying to justify the past rather than trying to make the future better. So your decision should always be about the future self and future utility. But we often think, well, people will look at me and think, oh, what an idiot, you know, he wasted or she wasted all that time. Um, I think when people see you getting out of a bad situation, they often think, well, it's about time, mm -hmm. you know, good for you. But if they don't, what kind of friend is that? That they want you to stay in a bad situation. The other thing is, what advice would you give to somebody else? So we're really, really good, Kim, <laughs> at telling other people, get the hell out of that relationship, right. you know, <laughs> or, you know, change your career or change your job or, you know, whatever. We're really good at telling people to make a change because we don't have to justify their decision. 
it's not, this is like cognitive dissonance. We don't have to justify for them why they made that decision, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, the sunk cost is very powerful. And, and your cat or your dog or whatever pets you have or um, birds or whatever, they're not, they're not, you know, sitting there ruminating about uh, what will other birds or cats think of me and other screws I'm a bad decision maker. You know, I as won't far be as able, we know, they're not well, doing that. <laughs> I won't be able to get into the college of my choice. Cats only have four cognitions. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. I want that. And what's next? <laughs> so to shift gears a little bit here let me ask you this how early in life does regret manifest what age do children begin to feel regret and does that change as they get older yeah so it's interesting the um, kids begin showing evidence of regret uh, between the ages of four and seven and the kids who express regret turn out to be better at making decisions because they learn from their mistakes or they anticipate mistakes. Uh, Second, they're better at regulating their emotions because they think, well, if I act out in this way, maybe I'll I'll regret it. Or if I do this, my emotions will become dysregulated. Um, as, As people get toward the end of life, when you look at the regrets of people in hospice, people who may be dying in the next month or few months, whatever, they're not having regrets. I wish I spent more time on social media, or I wish I got the uh, the bargains at Bloomingdale's at the end of the uh, Christmas season. They're not thinking about that. Uh, the regrets that they express, I wish I had been more true to my emotions. I wish I had told people I love them. I wish I had pursued things I really wanted to do. Uh, and basically living according to my values and according to the human relationships. And I think that's an important thing to listen to people as they get toward the end of life. What they've learned, they have a lot of wisdom about what matters. And so if you look at the regrets of people in hospice, uh, that's what we see. We don't see materialism and status and, you know, um, you know, proving winning arguments, uh, That's not in the regret repertoire of elderly people. In fact, elderly people have a positivity bias. Hmm. They they may have more long-term regrets because they've been around for a long time. But on a day-to-day basis, they more easily distance themselves from regrets. They just kind of move on. All right, so that didn't work out last week. I'm going to move on, you know, every day's gift. Do men and women experience regret differently? So men and women, and again, I think this is going to change as gender roles become more um, integrated, let's say. Uh, men have more regrets in the research about achievement and materialism. Uh, and women have more regrets about relationship and having sex uh, too early in a relationship. Uh, having said that, um, men and women have a lot of the same regrets. Um, when we look at cultural differences, um, Americans have more regrets uh, about romance, about school, about education, career. Whereas people in 
Asian culture, like in Taiwan or Japan, are more likely to have regrets about family and about relationships and about interpersonal things. Uh, they, there's a lot of overlap. It's not like uh, either or, but um, so it's kind of like thinking about what your regrets are all about. Uh, what do they, what do they say to you about it? Um, but I, th I think going back to what you mentioned earlier, Kim, I do think that social media, uh, that that regret is often tied into social comparison. Uh, not always, but it's often tied into, well, look at that person. They, you know, had a patient who, you know, uh, was, you know, doing fairly well in his career, but uh, was not making as much, had not accumulated as much wealth as people he went to college with and, um, you know, regretting, you know, what, where, where he was or having envy and whatever but I said, well, let's look at what you do have. And he had a great relationship with his partner, great relationship with his kids. He's healthy. He's a good person. Um, and uh, and I, I said, do you think there would be people who would be envious of you? So we often don't think that when we regret things, we don't think, gee, a lot of people might be envious of me. Right. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a paradox, I think, that um, – you know, the social comparison, I think, should be uh, should be geared to gratitude and compassion. And I, I've never I've never met somebody. And maybe these people never go to therapy, but I've never met somebody who said, you know, Dr. Leahy, you've really got to help me because uh, I have too much gratitude and compassion. You know, I don't know. It's getting the best of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to change that. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I, I know someone who likes to tell people that she regrets no choices that she ever made in, in her life, which I find really hard to believe. Do you yeah. encounter, are there really such people who say, yeah, everything I did, I was right. great. Yeah, right. Yeah. I say nonsense. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're looking in the wrong mirror, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I think, I think that's, that's part of like our contemporary social meme, you know, I have no regrets because every decision I made was mine and I live with the consequences. How are you going to learn from your mistakes? Why would you ever apologize if you don't have regrets, right? Right. I mean, imagine you were looking for a life partner, right? You're, uh, you're looking for a life partner and you meet somebody and they say, oh, I really like you. I'm really attracted to you. You're a wonderful person. But I think you need to know something about me. I'm incapable of regret and apology, right? Um, not unlike some politicians. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I don't know. For a lot of people, that might be a red flag because, uh, you know, you want people who have some regrets and some apologies. That's how you heal relationships. Uh, are there any big areas in this aspect of psychology that you feel are under-researched that we still need to know answers about? Well, I, I think that, um, I mean, I think we we really need to look at a lot of cultural issues and regret, a lot of uh, LBGQT issues and regret. And there's some recent research on that, um, like gender affirming uh, surgery, only 1% of patients who have that uh, um, express regret, uh, despite what the critics may say of transgender 
uh, and, and uh, gender affirming, only 1%, whereas people who have cosmetic surgery, a significant percentage have regrets. So, you know, are, are you you're more likely to have regret uh, about a nose job than a transgender? Yes, f- by factors, <laughs> by many factors, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, the facts can often confuse your thinking, but... Um, yeah, so I think we need we need to really look at a lot of the uh, uh, the cultural and uh, demographic differences and group differences and regret, um, and then how people spontaneously deal with regret. I mean, a lot of times, if you're a therapist, you listen to a patient and you think, "Gee, that's a great idea. I wish I thought of it," and then you realize. Yeah, my wife has been telling me that for five years. Why am I more likely to listen to a patient than my partner? You know, right. so a lot of times people come up with their spontaneous um, uh, cures or, 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 or strategies or techniques. Therapists don't have a monopoly on wisdom. And quite question of even if they have any wisdom, but you know, they don't have a monopoly on it. So looking at how people make the best of what they have. And uh, and what I'm struck by, I, I, I'm not a religious person. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not practicing anything. But I had a, um, a uh, Orthodox Jewish patient who, uh, who said, he said, you know, Bob, you know the mezuzah right outside the threshold of the door you see in apartments in New York? That I touch that when I leave the apartment to remind me of God's presence throughout the day. Now, even though I'm not a believer, I thought, what a beautiful reminder of gratitude and humility to take throughout the day. And I don't think you have to be like a Zen warrior to think this way, but I think there's a lot to be said for recognizing life has trade-offs. You're never going to get everything you want on your terms, so forget about demanding it. Uh, be flexible about your expectations. Um, recognize your mind is not going to be pure mind. It's going to be a kaleidoscope filled with noise. <laughs> and you can be ambivalent about your partner for the rest of your life and still have a good relationship because all your friends who know you are ambivalent about you because they know you. Um, and it's that to me is living in the real world. And regret is always about a fictional world. It's about a uh, what psychologists call a counterfactual world. Word, world. What does counterfactual mean? Against the facts. <laughs> it means it's not a fact. It's what you think could be. It's a possibility emotion as opposed to living in the real world and making the best mm-hmm. of what you have while still trying to do better. It doesn't mean you are resigned and give up. You can always do better. You can always grow. Uh, but we we often don't recognize how fortunate we are until we talk to people living in other parts of the world who are mm-hmm. suffering or see people who are disabled and struggling just to get down the street and to live. Dr. Leahy, I want to thank you for chatting with me today. I found this to be very interesting. Uh, interesting and, and informative. And I think that our listeners will will learn a great deal from it. Thank you. Well, Kim, thank you so much for having me. And I really sincerely appreciate your having me on. Hope you have a great day. Thank you. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org 
or on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at APA.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.